Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, Erica Gerard, esteemed producer of All the Wiser podcast. <laughs> Hello. So good to be back with you. This is like throwback Wednesday. I know. I love it. When we used to do episodes together. I love it being back on the microphone with you. Me too. Today is not a little wiser. It is Ask Me Anything. And the reason we are doing this is because it is May Mental Health Awareness Month. And I should tell you, Erica, you are largely responsible for me coming forward and sharing that I had bipolar disorder and that episode I did almost three years ago, which truly changed my life significantly for the better. You helped me release shame and secrecy and talk about something openly that I had hid desperately for 24 years. And I'm not sure if I've ever thanked you for that. So maybe we'll start by me thanking you. Oh, you're going to make me cry. That's so sweet of you to say, but I'm happy that I was able to be a, a bit of a midwife to your unfolding, which has just been so freaking cool to witness and just watch you step into this new kind of role as a somewhat of a expert slash mental health advocate. Um, I know you get a ton of questions from parents and friends about mental illness. And it's so nice that you can use your experience, your personal experience to help others. So bravo. Well, thank you. And I, um, you know, it's evolving. I think I, while I did share openly for the first time, and it, it really was transformative, there are still pieces today that are harder to talk to, or that I have deeper shame. So, you know, I want to be protective of. Um, so it's a gradual, evolving process talking you know, in full transparency. But that's part of what we're going to do today, part of the journey. Yes, and I'm so excited for this episode. I I just love that we get to hear from our listeners and, you know, they have such great questions and thoughts. And so many of you have contacted us and especially recently, it seems, and let us know just how much this show has meant to you. And I personally have a friend that I'd like to give a shout out to. Hi, Liz. I know you're listening, who struggles with some health challenges. And she told me the other day that this is the only thing that she can listen to this show. She's like, I just, it's all I do is listen to this show and it's very comforting for her, which is a huge compliment. But also Liz, 
maybe change it up a little bit and find something with a little bit of lightness and uh, and humor. <laughs> F you. We have lightness and humor. We do. We do. Yes, it's true. I agree. <laughs> we need to be on rotation with other things. <laughs> but I intentionally did not really look at the questions or listen. I was about to and I was like, I would rather not script out in my head what I'm going to say. So this is going to be very organic and in the moment, which is how I think the best conversations happen. So it was intentional for me. So I'm excited to hear what people had to ask. Well, shall we jump right in? Let's do it. Here we go. Hi, Kimmy. My name is Lucy and I have a couple of questions for you about mental health. So my first question is how to deal with burnout at work. I am currently a nurse in the ER. I was a nurse throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And as you and everybody else knows, burnout in the healthcare field is real. I don't see myself leaving the healthcare field at all because in some sick way, I love what I do. But I have realized that I'm burnt out and I'm not exactly sure how to deal with it. So any suggestions, ideas, opinions would be really appreciated. Second part of my question concern is um, about medication and therapy. Um, I developed anxiety in the beginning of the pandemic. I think it was the frosting on the cake and it, it was kind of inevitable. I was going to have a little bit of a breakdown, but I started medication and with that, I started therapy. However, I don't know if it's something I need to do for the rest of my life. It's definitely not something I want to flirt with, go on, go off. Thank you, Lucy, first of all, for calling in and more importantly, for your work over the last two years as a nurse during COVID. I can really only imagine just the intensity of that job the past two years. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around, you know, people who are working in hospitals. So not surprised by any means about the overwhelm. People actually often say a newsroom can feel like an ER at times, right? Because it's so reactive and the adrenaline is constantly going. I think the answer when it comes to burnout is a couple of things. Like when I think about wellness, one of the things up front is that perfect is the enemy of good. Because I think so often now it's like have a morning routine, drink lemon water, meditate, wake up early, right? And how realistic these things are. So I think it's like being gentle on yourself, first of all, and compassionate that like this is overwhelming. But I do think the bite-sized things you can think of that fill you up Like I have finally learned to meditate. And the only reason I'm doing it is because I do five minutes. That's it. Like my goal is five minutes. So I think it's like simple things for me. It's been, you know, wake up a little bit early. So I have quiet time and a shower and I can, you know, sit in stillness for five minutes, which actually I think pays huge dividends as the day goes forward. I also think it's looking at your life outside of work and where you can sort of mitigate or minimize overwhelm there. And sometimes it's the simple tweaks of like building in more time between things. Like I have found 
when I am overwhelmed and stressed and anxious, just looking at my schedule and giving breathing room so you're not like, you know, finishing work, racing to the dry cleaner, racing to the gym, you know, all of those little things actually that have a huge impact on our body. So I would say be compassionate with yourself and come up with really small bite-sized things that are feasible that translate into self-care. And then the last thing is boundaries. They're hard for all of us, but flipping the script and that saying no often means saying yes to yourself. So if you know, you're know you dealing with work and that may not change, what are some other things where as hard as it may be to say no, that saying yes to yourself so you can stay home and get a great night's sleep or you know watch a mo- your favorite movie, so I would say the boundaries and picking up those, you know, micro habits that make you feel good and fill you up. And then that little hack about building more time between things in your day. And the medication and therapy question. Yeah, that I'm really interested in that question, too, as somebody who is fully medicated and fully in therapy. <laughs> what are your thoughts on should we just see it as an eternal form of wellness that we just have to accept is always going to be a part of our lives? Or should we look at it as, okay, this is just temporary. I can always reevaluate later with the intention of eventually weaning off medication. Well, I mean, I think the medication piece is up to the trained professionals, right, to advise you on that. I have been advise with my particular illness that this is a lifelong situation for me with medication because off it the risk of suicidal ideation and other th- there's some really high risks for me based on my history and my family history but that is specific to me the chemistry of my brain and my body and I think it's really specific to what you're dealing with you know anxiety depression bipolar OCD I would argue though saying you're going to do anything forever (laughs) is, you know what I mean? We have no idea where medicine's going to take us, technology, you know, what alternative methods there are going to be moving forward. So I think thinking of most things about right here and now, this is what I need. Great perspective on that, Kimmy. And thank you so much for your question, Lucy. Yes. And Lucy, one of my favorite names. I love your name and I love you. (laughs) It is a great name. Okay, why don't we get into our next listener voicemail? Hey, Kenny. My name is Alex. I'm calling from Chicago. And I just have a question regarding therapy. I'm newer to it over the past year. And I was just wondering, do you think that you can outgrow your therapist? Alex, thank you for your question. I absolutely think when your instinct is that you have outgrown a relationship, it is completely appropriate, healthy, and sometimes even helpful to move on. I think the caveat there is that you really want to do like a gut check of, God, this is hard and I kind of want to run away because I think moving on because you feel like, I'm in a healthy place where I can take a breather or some reprieve, or I just feel like I've outgrown this relationship and I've evolved and sort of done as much work as I can with this person and it's time to move on. And I have broken up with many a therapist and it's super awkward. I always am like, oh gosh, but they're professionals. They want what's best for you. Almost every time they say it's an open door and and there's no... Um, 
harm in, you know, leaving and being super direct and honest on the way out. Because most people, I think, if you leave in a healthy way, there will always be, you know, ideally an open door if you need to come back to that person and that support. So Alex, I wish you well and thank you so much for sharing. Hey, Kimmy, I'm not really sure what happened, but my message got interrupted. Anyway, to go back to what I was saying, I started on anxiety medications. And with that, I started therapy, which have been great and have really helped me. However, I just wonder if it's something that I need to continue for the rest of my life. I know that my therapist has said, you know, check in when you need to check in. But I have since then been continuously taking the same medication and it's been working for me. Is there going to be a time where it's not going to be working for me? Should there be a time where I flirt with maybe coming off of it? I'm just worried that my anxiety my anxiety will come back if I do. So what is your opinion about that? Lucy, thank you so much for your question. And yeah, I mean, this is up obviously to a trained professional and you and your doctor having really deeply open and honest conversation about where you are with your mental health. I think there's, to my knowledge and experience, absolutely times where it can be appropriate to phase off a medication or try a new medication. I think the risk in the past with me and my 20s, I would try and go off. And this is very specific to the chemistry of my body, my illness. But I was like, I'm feeling great. I'm going to go off. And the reason that I was feeling great was in part because I the science was helping my brain, right? And then I would be back in, you know, a manic phase or a depressive phase and then, you know, try to back on the medication. I think it's totally contingent on where you are and having a plan in place, like not just saying, I'm, you know, if you are going out talking to your doctor to make sure they're supportive of that and then having supplementary things in place, right? There's so much now outside of meds that are really helpful with anxiety. So I'm going to phase this off, but what am I going to do to set myself up for success? You know, not just be like, oh, let's experiment. But, you know, I really care about my mental health and living with as little anxiety as possible. So really getting proactive to compensate for that loss, if that makes sense. That's such a great point about having a substitute available once you go off of medication. And I just want you to know, Lucy, as somebody who has gone on and off of medication my whole life too, that it's okay if you have to go back on it. If you find that your anxiety is just through the roof or it's come back even stronger, there's no shame in going back on medication. There's no shame in needing medication. That's what it's there for. It's there to help us. And nobody is going to be climbing new mountains with a big backpack of anxiety attached to them. So it's more of a quality of life perspective. If the medication is really giving you the quality of life that you seek and you desire, then stick with it. And if not, then like Kimmy was saying, maybe have a conversation with your doctor and explore other options. Yeah, I love that. No ego or shame around it, right? If you need to come back. And there's also right side effects. Everything is a cost benefit. You know, there's certain medications that you're on because 
at the time the need and the benefit is so high, but as you are in a better place, right? So there's, it's, it's a complex answer, but hopefully there's stuff, you know, between Erica and I that's helpful to you there, Lucy. All right. Well, now we're going to get into some questions from Instagram and email that you folks have sent us. And so let's start with one of our Instagram questions. This person is anonymous and they say, I've always had some anxiety, but have managed it well. I'm a mom of two young daughters. And a year ago, my husband was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Very sorry to hear that. My anxiety is awful now. Any tips or ideas for managing? My doc prescribed an antidepressant, which helps somewhat with that part of it. But the all-consuming panic, racing heart, etc. don't seem to have slowed down at all. Oh, speaking of heart, I am grabbing my heart. That is hard. That is a hard thing. And I am so sorry that you and your family are, are in it. So... I think here the self-compassion piece is so important to go easy and gentle on yourself that everything you are feeling is so human, right? You are in the middle of suffering and I can only imagine sort of the mosaic of emotions that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So I would say first and foremost, being really gentle with yourself. And then I would say, thinking about the things in your life that you can control. And maybe that is your sleep. You know, maybe that is getting proactive about carving out an hour of week to do something that brings you joy and connection, whether that's, you know, walking outside with a friend. But I would imagine you feel very out of control in your life and in your home based on everything that's happening. So taking care of yourself and being easy and gentle and compassionate with yourself. And we have certainly on this podcast talked about caretaking and you caring for yourself is just so critical. So I think really getting still with yourself and figuring out what that looks like to you, what fills you up, what, yeah, sort of wraps itself around you in a warm and comforting way and prioritizing that and knowing that that is in service of both you and your family. Yes, I love that you are advocating for just really bumping up the joy and delight in your life, Kimmy, because, you know, I think a lot of people out there have this belief that antidepressants are like the be all end all of managing anxiety or symptoms of depression. And I just want to say that it is not (laughs) true because, you know, medication can only take you so far. And I think it's so important to attack it from all fronts, like prioritizing, as you said, the walks with friends, going to a movie that you think will make you laugh, having a routine in the morning. I think the routine is critical when things are out of control. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I have like a stupid morning routine. No, I shouldn't say stupid. It's not stupid, but I read one piece of something nice and uplifting. I recommend Mark Nepo's The Book of Awakening as a nice morning uplifting one pager. I have a cup of coffee. I sit on the couch with my dog. We go for a walk. I mean, and that sets the tone for my entire day. What are your morning routines? They're not entirely 
consistent, but when I do it and I get up before everyone else in the house is up and I take a shower, same kind of thing, have a cup of coffee. I now have this thing I got on Amazon. It's now N-O-W. It's sound meditation for three minutes. I'll put them on either side of me. So doing that or going on an early morning walk has really changed my world. I used to roll out of bed and just hop into the day. And so I do think as annoying and cliche as the morning routine conversation being everywhere, it's because it actually works. So I do think that's a type of day where if you can take control of it, you feel more in control of your day. And from having friends who are caretakers for their husbands and for their kids, that is actually a theme that where them setting up a morning routine was kind of game changing for them. And Maya Moyles, as we know, one of my favorite guests who we lost in January during her living with stage four cancer, she said simply getting dressed in the morning, making her bed and cleaning her kitchen at night were things she could control and they were routine and structure and healing. So I think, think about that, those little micro moments that you can control that give you order and calm and peace. I also want to make a case for nutrition as a big part of addressing mental health and anxiety. It's massive. It's massive. And I don't think it's talked about enough. You know, my doctor once told me, if you can't cook a meal, if you like can't even think about going grocery shopping or doing that whole shebang, just find a way to shove a handful of leafy green spinach into your mouth. I don't care how you do it. I don't care if you just open your refrigerator and shove a handful of spinach in your mouth. But it's so important for your brain. What are your thoughts on nutrition and mental health? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you eat like crap, you feel like crap, right? We all know this. So I think it's the 80-20 rule, but really thinking about, you know, your body as this one body you have and giving it fuel to bring you pleasure and nourishment. And so I absolutely think, you know, caffeine, sugar, alcohol, we all know that has an impact on our mood. So eating well is, yeah, it's the benefits are are massive. And I agree there's not enough conversation when it comes to mental health and emotional well-being. But like, hello, of course, there's a relationship. Totally. Totally. All right. Let's get to some of our emails. Hi, Kimmy. First of all, I just want to say how much I love your show. And I'm just so inspired by you and your guests. Thank you for sharing your experience with bipolar disorder. I'm a psychotherapist that works with some clients with bipolar, and one of my children, 30-year-old son, also has bipolar. I'm curious about the first time that you remember feeling some hope after your diagnosis and what it was that was said to you that helped give you that hope. I want to encourage my clients as well as my son. Thank you kindly, Gretchen. Gretchen, that is such a great question, and thank you for your kind words. Man, hope was elusive to me for a very long time. I was scared out of my mind. I 100% thought I was going, air quotes, crazy. The world was technicolor and loud and confusing. And it was like, it felt as if it was, there was a snap. And I went from being, you know, just a 
happy, healthy college kid to feeling completely out of control. That hope was elusive. And I didn't, at that very young age, it was pretty clear to me that if my mind and my, if it felt like that to live in my skin and body, that I couldn't do it for a lifetime. That just, to me, was... To be honest, still looking back and thinking, I don't think I could have felt that way for a lifetime. It was just almost intolerable. So that was obviously really dark and scary as, I'm trying not to cuss on the podcast, scary as. You can say AF, scary AF. Oh, AF. Okay, got it. (laughs) Scary (laughs) AF. Um, I'm so wise and smart. Um, You're so hip and with it. Yeah, I think hope came when I stabilized, when the medications and the therapy began to work and my brain slowed down and sleep, you know, the medication started working and I started sleeping and I started eating But that time that I just spoke to where I didn't know if there was ever a return to normalcy was really scary. And and I'm not sure how I would have found hope at that time because it just didn't seem within reach. But I think as time progressed and then I think once you have that experience of knowing you can get through an episode and that, you know, There can be health and peace and calm and all of those things within reach, then the brain knows that, right? So I do think that it became easier over time. And I really think sharing, to be honest, and being vulnerable, I don't think by any means everyone needs to do it in a very public way that I did. I have a public facing platform. So it kind of, it made sense for me. And I was asking other people to talk about their things. So it, definitely made sense for me. But I think the sharing of it and not hiding it provided a whole nother level of hope that I could live well with it because I didn't fully understand how much that was impacting my sense of self and my emotional and mental health. So I think getting through that first episode and like recognizing that I was getting better and that I could get better. And then the second piece of realizing that the world would love and accept me in spite of this sort of gave me a different level of hope. And I totally get that sometimes it just takes having the evidence, right? Like to show yourself that you are capable of getting through and achieving something that you previously didn't think that you could. And so you know, just being on the other side of it is evidence enough. But one thing that was interesting about Gretchen's question, she was curious if there was anything that anyone said to you that helped give you hope. Was there any words of wisdom or anything that stuck with you that was kind of um, a salve for you while you were in just the throes of your illness? I don't know that anyone said anything. I got very lucky with having a great psychiatrist right out of the bat. And I found comfort in the trust of him and his manner, his bedside manner. Like I felt, I felt like there was people who had my back, both medically and with my parents emotionally. So I would, I would say it was more of like presence. I don't, 
I'm sure they said a million things to try and make me feel better. And none of them really worked because I was so scared. And what could they have said? What I wish somebody would have said to me, A, I wish there would have been an example or a model of somebody living well, right? And ahead of me who had had a similar past. And like, I wish there was a model of something to look forward to, to offer some glimmer of hope. And I also wish somebody would have sort of the bleak gray outlook of being mentally ill, that somehow they would be able to articulate perhaps some of the gifts and good, right? Because that is the truth. I now know that is the truth, right? So somebody would have been able to say, you know, it's very likely that as a result of going through this, you're going to Uh, may experience being a more compassionate person. I don't know exactly what it would have been, but any sort of hopeful message other than you're mentally ill, you need to be on medication for the rest of your life, you need to be in therapy twice a week would have been helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also I imagine knowing that you're not the only person dealing with this, that, you know, you're not alone on some bipolar island um, <laughs> That's a show by <laughs> Coming to a Netflix near you. Um, Reality show. I mean, it kind of might be very entertaining. <laughs> um, I would watch it. But I, you know, I think when we are going through dark gray times, it is so isolating. And we forget that we're not the only ones who struggle. And part of these gifts that you talk about, the gifts of having more compassion, having more empathy for others that are going through tough things. There's so many ways for that to show up in the world. There's so many ways for you to use those gifts when you're feeling like crap in order to just bring some lightness to others who are also struggling. Yeah. And I also think that like, the idea of for people who love people who deal with depression or I told the story on another podcast of last year, I went through a depression for like a month and I hadn't had a depression like that in a very long time. And I would get in bed and I would cry and I would like, it would be like 530 at night and I would be like, I am out. And it's very unlike me for a person who's normally sort of, you know, high energy. And so that level of depression, getting in the bed in the middle of the day and turning off the lights, all of that. And the moment I remember most about that month last year, Graham kept saying, you know, I'm sorry you're going through this and I know it'll get better. I've, you know, all the things that you want to say, but there's really no, nothing you can say that is going to make it go away because it is what it is. Right. And I got in bed and I was crying and he came into the room and I thought he was just getting something and he turned off the bathroom light and heard that I was crying in bed and just got in bed next to me and like cuddled behind me and said nothing. And it was like the most, uh, I almost want to cry talking about it, the most like loving, powerful thing to say, I'll just sit here with you. Um, Cause there's nothing he could have said to make it better than, you know? Right. Okay. <laughs> I didn't tend to get emotional, but no, it was no. such a I loving mean, it's, act. It's so, so sometimes... beautiful. And and, and it's some, it, it is those little moments sometimes that just 
Well, my friends mean who've everything. lost, yeah, my friends who've lost people and the people on the podcast, they say that about grief too, right? Everyone's like trying to find a silver lining, or and sometimes you just need to sit next to your friend and like rub their knee or their back and say nothing, like maybe for a long time that's more uncomfortable and it's silence than you wish. And I think that's what, especially as a man, they want to fix things. And of course, he wants his wife and the mother of his kids to be happy and to feel better. But sometimes just sitting with someone in their pain for people who feel a lot of pain because of the circumstances or because of mental illness is the hardest thing and the best thing you can do. Well, and what I love so much about what Graham did for you in that moment is that I think, I'm going to make a generalization here, but men, I think, oftentimes deal with things privately. And so their instinct when they see someone crying is like, oh, I'll le- let me leave you alone. You probably want space right now and you don't want to talk because maybe that's how they deal with big feelings or big emotions. And I mean, what I need, I think what's what people who are in pain need is they need their partners to turn towards them and they need their partners to not be afraid, not freeze when they see crying or or big feelings. They need to move closer. And that's what Graham did for you. He he came towards you. He put his arms around you. He expressed empathy just by being there without any words. And that I think is so important to mention. Yeah, it's a it's a really bold act of love. And I don't think it's easy to stand there seeing someone in pain and not try and fix it. But it really is just an extraordinary act of love and how the other person receives it, I think is really significant. All right. Well, thank you again, Gretchen, for your email. Thanks for making me cry, Gretchen. (laughs) I love it when you cry. That's twisted of me to say. But okay, we have two more emails that we're going to share before we wrap up our last episode of the season. Hi, Kimmy. This is Ed. For those of us who don't know enough about mental illness, Some of us have this preconceived notion that mental illness can now typically be very effectively controlled and managed with medication. I just remember growing up and watching crime shows, and many times it would involve a culprit that went off their meds. Every time I watched such an episode, I always wondered, why would they ever go off their meds? So my question really revolves around the macro topic of medication to manage mental illness. Explain the process slash struggle of finding the right medication or dosage, the negative implications of being on meds such as side effects, why someone would stop taking them. Does effective medication wear off and you continually need to recreate the wheel? In general, what I'm trying to get a better sense of, how hard is it to get on the right medication and what are the challenges and is it hard to manage long term? Thank you, Ed. And I know which Ed this is. One of my favorite people. Yes, medication is complicated and it requires management and it often requires tweaks and adjusting based on where you are in the trajectory, you know, whether you're doing really well and you're sort of at the baseline or maybe you're in a depression and, you know, need some tweaking there to help you get back to a healthy baseline or maybe you're manic and you, you know, so It is evolving and it's on the front end, it's finding the medication that works and that can be a very painful process on the onset because you just want to feel better. But 
it's a chemistry experiment, right? And you could have all sorts of reactions. So I think with bipolar in particular, there's a lot of sensitivity around it because the wrong medications can truly be deadly. So yes, you need to make sure, first of all, that you have the right diagnosis, because I think there's a lot of people who are misdiagnosed and on the wrong medications, and that can be a really, really risky and sometimes life-ending endeavor. But medications are tweaked. There's new medications that come out. So at least in my experience, it is constantly evolving. As to why people go off medication, I think often there's a million different reasons, right? They think they're doing really well, so they go off their meds and then boom, right? They have an episode and things go south and you know north, whatever direction they head in. And then they're sort of back to figuring out how to get to the baseline. So people do go off and I think it's just so specific and personal you know, you feel like you're doing well, or you think it, you know, people have all sorts of emotion around it, right? It's hindering my creativity, or I'm gaining weight, or frankly, I don't want to be on medication. So I I, th- I think that's a hard generalized answer to give. I think it's very nuanced and specific to the person. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to also lean into, I think, some subtle things that come up for me when I read this email ad, because I think if you don't struggle with mental illness, and I do think the media kind of hypes up this, you know, you're watching a crime show and this woman, she went, she's crazy and she went, she was off her medication and she killed someone and And then you have someone dropping to their knees that's like, why did she go off her meds, you know? (laughs) And it's hard for people who are not medicated to understand what it's like to be someone who needs medication. I mean, none of us want to have to need anything. And there is... A lot of shame, I think, that goes along with being medicated. I think we are just trying to see if perhaps now that we're in better life circumstances, that maybe we won't need to be medicated. And there can be a lot of judgment from people for being on medication or judgment for going off of medication and giving that a shot. And so I think that, I mean, my hope is that If you know someone who is trying to go off their medication because they want to see what life is like on the other side of medication, that we just have to have compassion for that experience and be supportive and let someone experiment with what that could look like for them and not, you know, impose our our feelings about it. It's a very touchy and sensitive subject. Yes, I I totally agree with everything you said. Well, thanks, Kimmy. Okay, thank you for that, Erica. And our last question. All right, this is an anonymous question. Kimmy, have you had to ask your family to help you with certain aspects of managing bipolar disorder? Do you ask them, for instance, to mention to you that something seems a bit off in your speech or conduct if you are at the beginning of a manic episode that you may not see coming? 
Thank you. Yes, this is something, and I am not the only person in my family with bipolar disorder. So this is something I have been on the receiving end of and the initiator. But my family likes to tell me in hindsight, kind of like, you know, when your friend breaks up with a boyfriend and you're like, (laughs) thank God. And they're like, why didn't you tell me you didn't like him? So I have noticed that like my mom will say, yeah, you seemed a little manic. And then like last month and I'm like, oh, hmm, maybe you should have told me when I was. I love you, mom. So yes, I think often you can... You know, there's an uptick in adrenaline and energy, sort of doing a million things. You know, I'm a pretty high energy person anyways, but I think probably for the people who know me really, really well, they can notice, I think, you know, speech and just sort of the pace in which you move and, you know, people often are spending more and taking on a bunch of projects and, you know, flooded with big ideas. So Yes. Early on, that was a big part of therapy was that exact thing. My parents and asking people to, you know, reflect back and sort of mirror to me. It's not like some big formal thing. I don't feel like people are having interventions with me, but certainly I get the hindsight thing a lot. Like, yeah. But do you want them to ask you or do you want them to share with you when they notice things in the moment? That's a hard one. You know, most people when they're manic don't really want to hear your opinion on their being manic because it's kind of, it's like they're riding high in life. So in hindsight, back when I was in my 20s, periods in my 30s, where I was for sure, like, you know, flying all over the place, not sleeping, would it have been helpful if someone was like, you probably need to rein it in based on having bipolar disorder. This is probably not helpful to you. And the depression piece, like you really don't need to be told. It's pretty obvious, right? So I think in a healthy, open relationship, there should always be dialogue and sometimes hard conversations. So I think you have to navigate that with the person you love and, you know, make sure it's coming from a really you know, pure and loving place, you know, not just your annoyance because they have a lot going on. <laughs> like, huh, maybe you're manic. Um, right, right. So, so I, don't, I don't know that I have a good answer, but yes, it's something in the past that for sure in my family comes up, you know, for, I, again, I've been on the receiving end of it and I've also, you know, had conversations with other people. But it's normally in hindsight, which, you know, we should be more direct in the moment. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's worked with you for many years now, I think I've gotten to know that part of you a little bit more. And I can tell immediately when we're having a meeting, like if you're struggling or you're having an episode or you're or you're just like in the funk because, you know, there's clues like you can be very detached, for instance, or you won't laugh at any of my jokes. (laughs) I know it's so, so Holly, when she did the interview, she's like, it's so confusing because you seem distant. You seem detached. And I would never, I always perceive myself as being this really warm 
person, right? Like a warm sort of, I like to think that I'm really warm and kind and loving and you're not the first person. And so I think I do shut down and try and protect myself. And I'm like, just trying to muster it. And people who really know me well and talk to me regularly is like, something is off with her. So yeah, that just means, you know, me really well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, but don't tell me until after. <laughs> Yeah, I clearly I won't I won't tell you in the moment. I will just mention it in hindsight. <laughs> like all the best communication. Yes, uh, right. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Continuing to push the conversation forward. Yes, yes. Thank you so much everyone who emailed and called in and that is a wrap on our season on our third season of All the Wiser. Yes. So we will be back. We're laughing because we're saying we're taking a summer break, which is no break at all because all summer long, we are going to be producing interviews that we're going to bring to you in September. And we are, I'm just going to tease it and say we are making changes. We are close to episode 70, and I'm talking about the long format interviews, much more if we add our mini episodes. And I have said to you, Erica, I don't know how long the podcast will go on, but the next 30 to get us to 100, which may be the time if we say this project was 100 interviews or not, depending on you know how, how these next seasons go. But my position at this point about All the Wiser is sort of go bigger, go home, like push the creative limits, push the storytelling, try new things to really take our our content to the next level and grow our audience in a really significant way. So the reach is bigger. So we are in risk-taking creative mode and there will be changes and I think they're going to be exciting and big and I can't wait to share them with you guys. Yes, I know. I can't wait to share them with you guys, too. It's it's going to be really beautiful, I think, to take these stories and and just shake it up a little bit. So um, with that, we hope that you will continue to let us know how the episodes are landing with you, what you like about them, what you don't like about them, and what you'd like more of. We always love hearing from you. Again, you can reach us at hello at allthewiserpodcast.com or just DM us. Send us a DM on Instagram at allthewiserpodcast. And while you're at it, make sure you are subscribed in every place you listen to your podcast. You can follow us there to make sure that you are the first to see when we drop our brand new episode Yes, make sure you're subscribed because I think I know what the first episode is going to be. And wow, this interview. Wow, wow. wow, I I don't even know what it's going to be. Well, I think I know. And it's, yeah, it's big. Okay, everybody, thank you for another awesome season. Thank you for being our people, for showing up, for, yeah, letting me cry with you on a Wednesday or whatever day you're listening to this. We love you and we will be back. And in the meantime, we will be on Instagram. And also you can go and sign up for our newsletter. I'll be writing over the summer and, you know, sharing myself in that way. So yeah, everyone, take care. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. 
Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.